Good morning, church. It is good to be together again on another Sunday to worship God. Um, Today, we are going to be in the book of Colossians. And some of what we're going to talk about, um, you know what? I'm going to go so far as to say, I I think what we're going to talk about today is greatly going to encourage your faith and help you to feel like, man, Jesus is the most incredible person, God, man, God, ever to exist. And I am so grateful for him and so grateful for the relationship that we can have with God. And so really what it comes down to Christianity, uh, of all of the religions in the world, is, is, is a religion that is based on love and hope. It's based on a God who cares enough about you to come down and to insert himself into this world to not just show you the way and to give you teachings, but to actually be the way, to be the life, to, to take what once was and and, and, you know, sometimes we can look at ourselves and say, well, I can never be like this. Jesus is the one who takes those of us who see that and transforms us into something new, into something different. And we'll, we'll, we'll go much more in depth as we are, are studying Colossians. But, but at the end of the day, guys, I, what, I want us to, what I want to encourage us with is to hold to the hope of the gospel. And so in order to do that, we need to talk about a few things. We need to talk about who Jesus is a little bit more in depth. We need to talk about what is the gospel that comes with it, right? Because if you don't know what the gospel is, it's hard. It's going to be difficult for you to hold to it. And then we're going to close out just by encouraging one another to hold to what we know to be true in God's word and in his law. Amen. Let's pray. Father, uh, we are so grateful for you, so grateful for how much you love us and care for us. I pray that you speak through me this morning, that you soften our hearts to your word, and that your word is the thing that convicts us. Your word is the thing that moves us, because God, I'm just a person, we are just people, but we know that if it's in your word, then it is true, that it is reliable, and it is something that that we can hold on to that can never be changed and never be taken from us. We love you, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So to give you a little bit of background about what's going on in the book of Colossians, there was an outside philosophy that was kind of, kind of penetrating the church and was discouraging the Colossian church um, to, to make them basically doubt whether or not they were right with God, whether or not they were really saved. Now, how many of you are in here today have ever really doubted that before? You've doubted, man, I, I, you know, whether as a Christian, before a Christian, I, I doubt, I wonder, if something happened right now, I'm not sure if I would go to heaven. You know, usually that happens to us right after we sin, right after we've blown it. Oh, God, don't take me right now. I'm on a downturn. I'm swinging low right now. You know, we don't want the chariot to swing low. I'm too, you know, God, just save me, save me. And so what, what ends up happening is, is, is the Christians in Colossae were really wrestling with this. God, I, I, I just want to follow you. I feel like something's missing. And Paul tries to assure them, guys, nothing's missing. 
Nothing is missing. The gospel has everything you need. Jesus has everything you need. And so it was hard because in their culture, they were surrounded by these different faiths, these different religions, these different philosophies. Uh, there was the cult of Sybil, which is uh, kind of like she was a, a mother goddess. And they, those who worshipped her, they worshipped, you know, fertility and the earth. And, you know, you can see that in today as people worship fertility in different forms, right? And they, they worship nature. They worship the world around them as, as their way of connecting with something divine. And yet we know that even though God created all things, he, is not, he cannot be summed up or contained by any one creation. Creation points us to God. Creation is not God. That's, that by itself could take a whole sermon to, to dissect that. And then they looked at these, these different, you'll see that even in, in the money that they had in Colossae, there were, there were different gods that were put on the coins that were images to show that this God is backing the currency. And you'll see this is going to come in handy later on when we talk about Christ and Him canceling our legal indebtedness. Whose face is on the Christian currency? Whose face is on the currency that goes before God? And so they, they worried. They, they looked at the world around them and they worshipped these different gods and these different things and they, they were taken in by these different philosophies. And yet we know that none of these were true. Then those who were even on the, let's say, of the Jewish background, that's, those are from the non-Jews, even on the Jewish side, they were wrestling with different philosophies. You know, sometimes you may feel like, like somebody's coming and they're trying to give you this secret insight into who God is and who the Bible is. Well, they had that uh, in, in the form of, of angels. These people would claim that they had a vision from an angel. And this happened a lot, especially during the period of time between when the last book of the Old Testament was written and when Jesus came. These different people would claim that an angel came to them and gave them these special teachings, these special revelations from God. And I know many of you are in here, you may feel like, oh, this person's an angel, but none of us have the authority to alter God's Word. And so, as this is happening, they're like, oh no, I just, I, just, there's, I, I want to follow God. I want to, to do what is right. I want to do what is good. But there's a, a danger. A danger when we move away from the Gospel message. Because what it does is, is, it, is, is when we do that, we start to treat Christianity like any other religion. And there are many people, you, you might even be sitting in here today, and you, feel, you may feel like, well, they, all religions in the world have the same basic principles. They all teach you need to love your neighbor. They all teach God is a loving God. They all teach all these good things. Well, if you actually study out Christianity, and you study out some of these religions, you would find that there are some major contradictions in them. Some things that are not true. And, and I've got to tell you, Christianity is like the main religion that talks about God being a loving God. You're not really going to find it anywhere else. They may have adapted it in some way, but there are some religions that even teach that love is, is, is a part of the problem. That if you love, then you have desire, and to have desire is a bad thing, and so you've know, you got to get rid of that, and that, that ruins things on the path to God. But what God 
what, what, what the Christians are being attacked by, they're being attacked on two fronts here in Palisade. They're being attacked on Jesus' identity. Because sometimes we can question that. We, you may never say, I question Jesus' identity, but we doubt, right? We have moments where we, where we don't feel like God is really in control, where we feel like things aren't going the way they should do, right? When we do that, we, we're, not, we're losing sight of Jesus' identity. And also, God and, and, and the world around us, they like to attack our identity as Christians and to make you feel like you're not important, to make you feel like you don't matter, to make you feel like what you have in Jesus isn't special. And none of that is true. And so he writes, Paul, as he writes this letter, he writes it to encourage the Christian church, to encourage the believers to hold to the gospel. And maybe, maybe in your mind, you're, you're, you're not wrestling with these fake, false religions. But all of us know what it's like to be in need and to feel like we don't have. All of us can look at our lives and feel like, God, if I only had this, or I know this piece is missing from my life, I would just be content if things went this way. When we feel that way, we've lost sight of the gospel. We've lost sight of what God has done. Because, because as Christians, we need all the encouragement we can get. We need, you know, God, God calls us to live from a place of gratitude and reassurance. But Jesus is enough. God has made you full. He has made you whole. And whatever is lacking, whatever you feel is lacking in your heart, in your character, in your faith, any brokenness you may feel, Christ, and this is what we're going to see, brings this to fullness. Okay, fullness from a biblical standpoint doesn't mean like, oh, I have a full belly. In a sense, it does. There's a fullness. You don't need anything else. But fullness in a biblical sense is you are whole. You are complete. You are the holy whole. And so all of that, all of that introduces us and sets a background for what we're going to see here in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. Because the hope of the gospel starts with Jesus. And it ends with Jesus. And it's maintained by Jesus. Everything goes back to Jesus. And so in verse 15 it says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God, and were enemies in your mind because of your behavior. But because He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death 
to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Let me just say that one more time. Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue to hold to the faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that you have that and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I Paul have become a servant. Have become a servant. Now what's amazing is is those first 3 verses that we read verses 15 to 17, they were actually a part of an early Christian hymn. Now, why do we set things into music? Yeah, things that are set in music are usually more memorable. That's why people, when they, you know, they can know every single word to a, every single word in a song. Not me, I don't know any words to any song. Literally, it's horrible. But most people find that when you attach a tune to something, it sticks in your memory. Now, the fact that this was an early Christian hymn meant that this is something important. Something that the Christians needed to remember and sing about on a daily basis. When we sing songs in church, we're singing to remind ourselves about deep truths of God. They're there so that, because music resonates in our soul in a deep way that other forms of, of communication can't do and won't do. And so the Christians would sing this over and over again and they'd talk about, right, if you look at the contents of verses 15 to 17, they talk about Jesus. That's it. They talk about how incredible Jesus is. It starts off in verse 15 and it presents Jesus as the creator of the universe. Everything you see, everything you can't see is from Jesus and it's for Jesus. Everything in this world. Now that is a dynamic statement because it states the purpose of why you're here. If you're wondering, you're like, man, I just wish I knew what my purpose was in life. You were made by God for God. You were made by Jesus for Jesus. You know, when you're, when you're in a relationship with someone, you might try to be really sweet. And, you know, you might say this to your spouse. You might say, honey, we were made for each other. And, and, you know, you look at that, that you look at each other and you go, yes, we were. We were made for one another. And there's this deep bond that you feel and you're just, you're super close. But, but that's, that's the intimacy that God is talking about here. He's saying to you guys, we were made for one another. You were literally made for God. Now, you may think about that. That's, that's, that's crazy to think about. You know, I think in, in our society, we long for that. We crave that in relationships. We just want to be with someone and around people that we feel like we belong. Right? We want to be in a church that we feel like we belong. Our group of friends, we want to feel like we belong. You, when, when you find the person that you want to spend the rest of your life with, you, you, there's a, a feeling of, of that you belong with one another. 
And even though you may feel that to some extent with human relationships, that is just a small sliver. That's actually to help you understand the fact that you were made for God. And so if you can feel that way about a human being, you've got to take that and say, wow, God feels this way. God cares about me this much. Sometimes we, we reject that. We say, oh, I'm not worthy of that love. I can't do that. But, but it, so, you know, when you love someone, sometimes you can't even choose it, right? You just, man, this comes out of nowhere. I, I love this person because I love this person. You know, parents, you understand this on a, on a level that those of us who don't have kids don't get. Your kids drive you crazy. If there were times, I'm sure you could kick us out of the house, you would have, but you can't legally, but also you can't, you can't because there's a part of you that you just like, I just, I, I love this person. They're worth every bit of suffering because they're my child. And that is the way that God feels about you. I know. I know that it's difficult for us to accept. But this is what God is saying. This is who He is. You are made for Him. And Jesus shows that. Because it says that Jesus is the, is the image of God. He is the perfect representation of who God is. And who is the God that we see in Jesus? We see a God who is willing to not just say, hey, come to me. He's a God that, that seeks you out. He's a God that pursues you, a God that woos you and draws you to Him because His love is supreme. You know, when it talks about Him being the firstborn, it doesn't literally mean that Jesus was the quote-unquote firstborn. Okay, in, the, in biblical, I know that we're going to get technical for a second, but it, it, in the context and stuff, it means more that He's just like the preeminent. He's like the first one in this way of doing things. It's like all the other ways that people, and you, you guys probably understand this too, those of you who have had more than one relationship, all the ways that you were loved before in the past, they may have prepared you for the love of God. All of the things that made you feel good in the past may have prepared you for the love of God, but you've never experienced the kind of love that Jesus has for each and every one of us. It's on a different level. And so, so it, he's, he's supreme in the way that He loves. And no one can take up the role that Jesus has. There is no one on this earth who can love you like God can. And I think you understand this point, but sometimes we compromise that and we look for lesser loves when we choose loves that we know that, that hey, this is not something that would be pleasing to God. We settle for something less than what God is offering us. And so Jesus is saying he's the first one in this, in this way of life. He's the first one to show us what real love is. He's the first one to be resurrected in the way that Christians will be resurrected to new life. It's a different way of doing things. And then in verse 17, it talks about uh, how in Jesus, all things hold together. Jesus holds all of our world together. It does not function without God being the way that we are. And the reason why Paul is, is saying this is he wants to remind Christians of who Jesus is, but also that 
if Jesus is all of these things, if He is the Creator, if this is who God really is, then you don't have to worry. Because if Jesus can sustain the universe, then Jesus can sustain your faith. And so if you wonder, oh, I don't know if I can do the Christian life. I'm not sure. Maybe if, if you, you've been studying the Bible for a long time or, or you're, you're at a place in your walk with God where you're just, you're just wondering, I, I don't know if I can go on. I don't know if I can handle this. If you're doubting whether or not you can do it, you have to understand the Christian life does not depend on your faithfulness as if you could earn your salvation by being good. The Christian life depends on Jesus' faithfulness, on Jesus' goodness. And He is the glue that holds you together. He is the glue that holds the universe together. He's the glue that holds the church together because God knows we've done enough to try to mess things up, right? Both individually and as a people of God. But Jesus is the one who holds it all together. We do have our part to play. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But everything goes back to Jesus. And so he presents this hope. And then he reminds them, why? Why would you give up on on Jesus? Why would you give up on the hope of the gospel? Do you not remember what it was like before Jesus, before you you really had a a relationship with, with God? Before Jesus came into your life? Because he, he says, you were alienated from God. At one point, God, you, you, had, you had no connection with God, no relationship with Him. You, did, you couldn't. And you were, you were separated from Him in your attitude and also in your actions. The things that we did and the attitudes we had said, God, I want nothing to do with you. And we ended up pushing God away. And yet God has continued to chase us down. We were enemies of God. Now, some of you who are sitting here, you might be new to this. You may not realize that at some point you are an enemy of God. And um, I, I want to encourage you to sit down with someone who, you know, who you came with, to sit and talk about what, why, why we're enemies of God, what has separated us from God. Because I know growing, for me growing up, that was a concept I didn't understand. That was something I did not get, and I think it'd be difficult for us to get, right? Once we, once we start thinking about God as so loving and giving, the idea that God would ever be separate from you and me can be hard to grasp. But I want to encourage you, please do that. But we see that in all of this, God has called us to hold to the gospel of truth. Because he says, even though you were alienated from God once, that is not true any longer. Now let's, let's get to the really fun part. Let's get to the really, really fun part. Because that statement of, oh, even though we were alienated from God once, we're not alienated from him anymore. I think that's the piece that, that maybe God is trying to enrich our understanding of, of really how deep that goes. Really what that means for you and me on a deep level. And so in Colossians chapter 2, we're going to pick up in verse 6. And this is a big statement that I'm going to make here. I I, I know you you, you may give me a little pushback on it, 
But I'm going to say, if you do not understand what we're about to talk about, you do not get the gospel of Jesus. It is that important, it is that essential to being a Christian that without understanding it, you have missed the power, you have missed the fullness of what God has been trying to communicate to you. And so, amen, he's communicating it to us here in Colossians. It says in verse 6, So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins, And in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, Triumphing, that, triumphing over them by the cross. So what's he saying here? What's the big deal about the gospel message? Let me give you an analogy. Oh, he, let's start with his analogy, and then we'll go to another analogy. So here he's talking a little bit about um, a little bit about the circumcision that God performs. As he's, and he's talking about baptism here. And you know, when it comes to to baptism, it's not it's not that you reach this level of awesomeness where God finally accepts you. It's like any relationship; you choose to be with one another. You don't hit a level of awesomeness before God is willing to accept you, right? You say, "I love you. You love me. Great. Now we're a happy family." So that is that is one of that's that's how God works. Sometimes we overcomplicate things and we feel like, oh, well, I need to be this perfect or I need to change this in my character or that before God is willing to accept you. God has chosen you. God has chosen you. Literally, the requirement for someone to be baptized here that it's talking about is they have to believe that Jesus is who he said he was and that he is going to be faithful to the promises that he's made. That's it. You have to believe that Jesus is God, right? That he's who he is and that you know that God is going to work on your heart, on transforming you, right? God accepts us where we're at and then changes us through our relationship with him. He doesn't say, go change and then you'll be ready to be with me. That's a big difference, right? 
That's a big difference in the way that God works and the way that he functions. And so when he talks about the difference between someone being in Christ and someone being outside of Christ, you might think about this. This is the difference between someone before they're baptized and someone after they're baptized. Jorge, this is good news for you. This is great stuff that you're, you're, you're about to do. He says the difference is as big as someone being dead versus being alive. That's a big difference. A big difference between the two. You know, when I think about, and many of you know that, that I've had a, a number of my, my grandparents pass away over the last couple of years, but even as, as I was writing this, you know, it really, re- reflecting on the death of a loved one, really helped put this into perspective. You know, when I think about someone who has died, You long, you long to be with them one more time. You long to have just just a new memory, another conversation. You understand that there's a vast difference between the two, and there's a pain that comes with death. Even even in the best case scenario, and you know that this person is with God, still that, that separation is not the same. And so... Jesus is, is, Paul is using this analogy to help us understand this is where you were before God came into your life, before you were circumcised by Christ, before you were baptized. You were dead. You were dead in your sin. The pain that came with that, the lack of memories, the not being able to live, to move. You were content. There was nothing. Nothing. You were buried. And yet in Christ, God has given us new life. Something more. And so this is what he's saying. And so when he's talking about the fullness, the things that we thought about ourselves, the way that we thought before we became Christians, and if you're not a Christian, this is what will change when you become one, is that you become full. God takes what was dead and he brings it to new life. Let's think about this analogy. Because in verse, in verse 2, he talks about how Jesus cancels the legal indebtedness to our sin. So let's say you are in debt. Okay, some of you may understand this very well on a real level. Okay, being in debt. And so... You end up, whether it's, it's student, let's say, let's say you're, you're, you're just cruising along in your day-to-day life and you just, you just do not deny yourself any pleasure. And you're like, oh, I want to buy a house, so you buy a house. You're like, oh, I'm going to go back and get a degree, so you take out student loans. Oh, I'm going to buy this nice car for myself. And, oh, let me just go on the shopping spree here and there, and you buy all these great things. And all of a sudden, uh, the bill comes, and you go... I'm, I'm dead. There's, there's no way. There's literally no way that I am paying this back. And I think that, you know, as I was saying before, if you have been in debt before, you understand that there is a crushing weight that comes with that debt. There are, there are many things that you cannot do. Your freedom is restricted. Your life is restricted because of that debt. And Jesus is making the parallel to that's what sin does to our life. 
Sin is a crushing, sin is a crushing weight that, that holds us back and, and, and keeps us from living free and being able to do the things that we want to do, much like being in physical debt can do to your life. You want to go on vacation? You can't do that. Or you can do it, but not without putting yourself in a bigger hole. And so there's, there's, there's this piece where we're, where we're in this, this, oh, we can't get out, God. I just want to be free. And so it's the thing that's constantly on your mind. I just, I, I, I need to get out of this debt. Your budgeting becomes, I need to get out of this debt. Everything, I need to get out of this debt. And so when you're living a life like that, can you enjoy that life? No, you cannot. But that is how many of us live our Christian lives. That is how many of us live our lives because we go, oh, I've sinned, I'm in debt, I've got nothing. But what Jesus is saying is when you're in your debt, when you're struggling, when you can't pay it back, you meet someone very special. And that person, you start dating them, and all of a sudden, somewhere along the dating phase, you realize that that person is incredibly rich. Like... Like crazy rich, like, whoa, I just hit the jackpot rich. And, you know, your parents are sitting there going, oh, yeah, you did good. You did good. (laughs) Okay. And you're like, I hit the jackpot. All these good things are going on. And you're excited and you're, you're more excited about the person, hopefully. That's actually a pretty big distinction between Christianity, whether or not you're excited about the person or you're excited about the wealth that they have. And sometimes as Christians, we can be more excited about the wealth, the things that God can give us and do for us, than we are excited about the person of Jesus. But for our sakes, let's assume that you guys are excited about the person of Jesus. Amen? And so, what happens is, when you marry this person who is infinitely rich, your debt becomes their debt. Their wealth becomes your wealth. Right? You, at, you end up, if you're one, you're paying each other's debt legally. If I have a lot of student loans and, like, you know, I were to die, it goes to someone else. It goes to the nearest person. Kevin's looking at me like, uh, either way, the debt needs to be paid. <laughs> the debt needs to be paid. And so what ends up happening is, let's say, let's say, let's take all that off. Let's say you have a ton of debt and the person who you're married to decides that they would like to pay that debt for you. Is that better, Kevin? That's better, okay. The person you're married to wants to pay that debt for you. The debt is completely paid off. You are no longer in debt. Are you going to continue to send checks to pay off that debt? Why not? Because it's paid for. So then why do we do that with our Christian lives? The debt has been paid for. It's gone. When you sin, when you mess up, whether it's sin that you've done in the past or the sin that you just did moments ago when you phased out and you weren't listening to what I was saying, (laughs) the debt is paid. I forgive you. Jesus forgives you. Okay? The debt is gone. And so now that the debt is gone, you have freedom. 
You are no longer crushed under the weight of death. The, the guilt of your sin is gone. Your separation from God is gone. He has paid off everything that needs to be paid. And so you wonder, let's say you get a speeding ticket. You're like, oh no, how am I going to pay for it? Boom, you've got Jesus, and He's there to pay for it. You lust, you mess up. Jesus is there to pay for it. That is so incredible to think about. This is the kind of gospel that God is presenting you with. Debt-free, your sin is gone, it is wiped away. You are holy and blameless in Jesus. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Because we did talk about one side of things. We did talk a little bit about the, the freedom that comes with that. But there's a reason that Paul in, in Romans chapter 6 says, shall we keep on sinning so that grace may increase? Now, for, now if, if you, right, think of, you, looking back to that analogy, you're with somebody who has a crazy amount of wealth, you could take advantage of that. You could decide to say, because my spouse is so wealthy, now I'm going to go on a shopping spree. Now, since the debt is already paid for, it doesn't matter. I can just sin as much as I want. Now, is that a faithful way to steward God's money? No. But, but the key is in, one is out of a response to the gratitude of loving God, and the other is because you want to take advantage of what God has done and what God can give to you. You can't pay that debt. Everything that is true of Jesus becomes true of you. And you have the choice. Now that, now that that sin is gone, now that you're freed up to live how God has called you to live, you have the choice as to whether or not you're going to use that freedom to live selfishly or if you're going to use that to live to love God, for that relationship, to treat Him. And that's why as Christians, we don't take sin lightly. Because of love, because of gratitude, not because we have to pay back some debt, not because we have to earn our way into good standings, not because, oh, I'm the greatest person on the face of the earth. Because of love, we live that way. You know, thinking back to, to my grandparents, my grandparents grew up during the Depression. And, you know, when, when I think about how they were, even, you know, well into their, to their later years, after the Depression had passed, there were some things that were different about how they lived. Even though they had resources now and they didn't have to worry about the different things that happened, because they understood what it meant to be in need, because they understood what it meant to not have or to be in debt or in want or not to be able to get things that you want, they lived differently. They looked for bargains. They weren't, they weren't wasteful with their money, but they decided, okay, because, I've given, because God has given me this, that doesn't give me an excuse to be foolish with what God has entrusted me with. And so that is how God is calling you, as those who are in Jesus, to live your day-to-day -day lives. To not take Jesus' sacrifice for granted. Because 
what, what, what we do, what, uh, the debt that we had was paid for in blood. Paid for in blood. That is not a light price to be paid. You know, we're talking about the, the name on the currency, the face on the currency of, of, Christian, of Christian money. It's, it's Jesus' face, but that money is covered in blood. But our debts are paid for because of it. And so that's why when, we, when we're tempted to sin, we can pull out that coin. And it reminds us because we see the face, of, the face of Jesus and we see Jesus' blood on it as well. So we don't take it lightly. We know what it costs to get our sins forgiven. Now this is so cool. Just as we close out, when we understand our spiritual brokenness, we, we allow Jesus to transform us and move our hearts. And I love this because, because as he's closing out here in these, last, in these last couple of verses, or as we're closing out, he's talking about how Jesus has taken away these things, nailing it to the cross. And then in verse 15 he says, Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing, over them by the cross. So what is he saying here? He's saying that even though you and I, whether it started with Adam or the choices that we make on a day-to-day basis, we broke from what God intended us to. We decided to live our own way and, and go separate from what God has. So we, in essence, we broke the world together. But Jesus breaks the world that we built and makes a new one. He triumphs over these things. He triumphs over the, the ways of the, of the world. He broke their power. These other, these human, the human beings, the way that the world does things, they no longer have power over you because Jesus is who He said He was. He took the greatest piece of Roman authority. Romans, when they, when they conquered a country... The, the general would come in and he'd, and he'd be paraded and lauded and everyone would just sing his praises and cheers. And so that was the winning side. That's what would happen. But the losing side was put up on crosses on the outside for everyone to see the difference between the victor and the loser. And Jesus flips that upside down because as the one who's sitting on the cross, He comes off of it and says, the victory is mine and not yours. And so with that, church, I want you to walk away thinking and knowing the victory is yours because anything that is true about Jesus is true about you if you are in him. So hold to the hope of the gospel. Amen.